About two years ago, I came across a news article that had the headline, Proud Parents of a 28-Year-Old Millennial Post His Annual Back-to-Basement Picture. In Silver Spring, Maryland, local parents Bill and Cindy Kaufman completed an annual tradition Friday when they posted a photo of their 28-year-old son, Justin, moving back into the family basement. After finishing his summer job as a volunteer counselor at Camp Wishikawa, Justin returned to his parents' home to move back in and resume his part-time job as barista. His basement room was prepared by his mother, Cindy, who insists on the picture every year when Justin returns home. Aw, he's getting so big. Don't you love his outfit? Cindy asked Bill, while Justin posed at the top of the stairs holding a small chalkboard with the number 28 scrawled on it with his name. Some of our friends' kids write down what they want to be when they grow up, Bill told sources, since Justin still isn't sure. We just asked him to write his age and a few of his interests. I don't know where the time went. Just another short decade and he'll be gone, Bill wistfully added. Now, whether we know of a story like this from our own life, or we've read about it in a comical newspaper full of satire, stories like this leave us scratching our heads, don't they? Leave us asking some questions. Why is this 28-year-old man who is fully competent and physically able still living in his parents' basement? I mean, you wonder whose fault is it that this fully healthy and grown man who could easily go get a job and live on his own is still living in some ways like a young child. Is it his parents' fault? Are they enabling him to never move out and take on adult responsibilities? Or is it this 28-year-old man who is just okay with the status quo of doing the bare minimum and just continue to kick the can of adulthood down the road? You see, even as young as grade school, we know instinctively that remaining the same in every way isn't normal. I mean, don't you remember that question when you were a child? You got this basically every year when you hung around your aunt and your uncle, your grandma and grandpa. You were asked that question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Some of us are still wondering what that is. You see, there's something innate in us as image bearers of God that desire growth in our lives. Athletes desire to grow in strength and stamina to compete in their sports. Think of Tom Brady. Some of us are hitting that midlife crisis trying to pick out a new leather couch while Tom Brady's still getting Super Bowl rings at 43. Students want to grow in their ability to test well in school in order to earn degrees in advance in their education. Uh, farmers want their crops to grow so they can sell their goods to grocery stores and provide food for their families. Uh, employees want to grow as well. They want to grow in their skill set 
hoping to move up in the chain of management in their companies to obtain better benefits and maybe even higher pay. Or even think of a young boy growing up in a Jewish home who will be eligible for his coming-of-age ceremony, his bar mitzvah, where he is then held responsible and accountable as an adult towards the commands of the Torah. Now, this is that point where a young boy around 12 or 13 years old is no longer viewed like a child by his family, but now looked upon as a young adult. Growing up, coming of age, developing into a mature man or woman. Friends, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, do you see growing spiritually as normal or abnormal for a Christian? In other words, are Christians expected to grow up? Are believers called to mature in their walks with the Lord? You know, go from being babies in the faith to oak trees of men and women of God? And if they are, what exactly does this maturity process look like? If we are followers of Jesus, how should that affect the way we help others follow Jesus? Like I've already mentioned, today marks the third and final sermon in our series of Who is Jaffe Crossing Baptist Church and Why Do We Exist? And if you've missed the last couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to listen to those sermons so you can kind of see the whole uh, series in one package. But over the last two weeks, we've discovered that in order for our church to be faithful to our Lord, we must understand God's blueprint for what a church must be. In the first sermon, we began to look at our church's mission statement, which reads, CCBC exists to be a pillar of God's truth with a passion for all people to worship the one true God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through preaching and teaching and by showing his love through meaningful church membership and gospel-centered missions. And from there, we discovered from passages like 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, that the church is to be the pillar of God's truth. That means what we speak, what we believe, what we defend, and really ultimately what we love should be the truth. The truth about God. The truth about Jesus Christ. The truth about our sin. And the entirety of truth found in the trustworthy word of God. When you boil it all down to it, we and every other church are faced with the same challenge. In order to remain a true church in the eyes of God, we must say what God says. And by God's grace, we must do what God commands. If we want to see God's word go forth from our hearts to the nations, it has to start with being a church that is founded upon God's truth. Then last week in our second sermon, we stared at the beautiful design of what a local church actually is, what the Bible describes the church according to God's perspective. The church is the bride of Christ, 
the flock of God, the household of faith. And we focused our time thinking about when local churches are formed, local churches are created when born-again believers gather together. It's not only when they gather together, but it's when they preach the gospel clearly. And it's not only when they preach the gospel clearly, it's when they faithfully administer baptism in the Lord's Supper. And what we've discovered is that when all of these elements are on full cylinder, they're working in unison together, we get to see God's design and really the goal of what church membership at CCBC is all about. We want to move people from being only once a week church attenders to seven days a week Christ followers. So today, we want to see how these realities intersect. What happens when a church understands why it exists according to Scripture and when a church understands the ultimate goal of church membership? What do we see happen? We see Christians grow. We see Christians grow. We see regenerate or born-again believers do what God wills for every child that belongs to him. We grow up and we mature into Christ's likeness. In other words, followers of Jesus make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That's not for the youngest or the oldest. That's not for the pastor or the deacon. That's every follower of Jesus. To study more on this, we look at a section of Scripture found in the New Testament letter of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 568. As you're turning there, let me catch you up to speed where we're at in Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is writing to believers who live in and around the city of Ephesus to do what he basically typically does in all his New Testament letters. He teaches them sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel, and then he encourages them towards godly living. So in Ephesians chapters 1 to three, he spends time showing them all the blessings of what God has done for us in Christ. That's really Ephesians chapter one. And then he's going to show us in chapter two, chapter three, and even chapter five, how the church is the people for whom Christ died. The church, the people in whom the resurrected and exalted Christ is now building up into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Ephesians 2, verse 22. But in Ephesians chapters 4 to 6, Paul then now takes us down a new path, a new journey, a new direction in his pastoral care to help these believers, and really us this morning as well, apply what he's been teaching them over the last several chapters. And that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. We're going to look at a passage that answers the following questions. 
What is God's calling for the life of every disciple of Jesus? And what is God's will for the spiritual maturity of every disciple of Jesus? And my hope as we walk away from this passage is that we will have a simpler understanding of God's call on our life to make disciples and that we'll walk away seeing the importance of every member of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church either being discipled or discipling someone else. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you're taking notes, here's my basic outline. Point number one, your worthy calling to protect the body of Christ. And number two, your worthy calling to build up the body of Christ. So number one, your worthy calling to protect the body of Christ. That's really verses one to six. Paul begins right here in verses one to three, speaking about the lifelong calling that every disciple of Jesus receives from the Lord. And what is that calling? It is to live a life of love in order to protect the unity of Christ's church. We read starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, In the bond of peace, 
as Paul writes from a Roman prison, I want you to notice that he first reminds them of the cost of discipleship in his own life. What it cost him when he chose to love Jesus more than his own freedoms. He chose to love Jesus more than his own reputation among men. How he loved Jesus more than even his own life. Did you notice he describes himself as a prisoner for the Lord? You know, Paul was a messenger sent on behalf of Jesus, an apostle. He was commissioned by Christ to proclaim the good news about Jesus to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And then he would lead them into planting new local churches, a local church, much like Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. But sometimes Paul's obedience to God's call in his life got him in trouble. In other words, when Paul said yes to Jesus, he was going to face no from the world. It got him in all sorts of painful encounters. It's almost like every turn he had in his life, he found himself between a rock and a hard place. A rock and a hard place where he was suffering for his risen Lord. Well, let me just state the obvious but necessary point before we get to the heartbeat on this passage. Not every Christian will end up in prison for Christ. Some will, and many have. But every Christian, if they obey Jesus publicly and boldly, will face suffering for Jesus along the way. That's because, beloved, our relationship with Jesus is personal, but it is never private. Let me put it this way. If people only know you as a Christian on Sundays, when you're sitting in this building at 813 Fort Street, but never any other day of the week, you may need to ask yourself, why is that? Are you that? timid and quiet about your Jesus? Or is it that maybe you don't know him for yourself? Because if you've got good news about the greatest news the world has ever heard, you've got something to tell someone. I think we should all take heed and tremble at these words from our Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verses 32 to 33, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, friends, the path of obedience to Christ is paved with many thorns of suffering for Christ. The path of obedience to Christ is paved with many thorns of suffering for Christ. But friends, Paul's not starting off this chapter wanting us to feel sorry for himself. He's not wanting any, chin up, Paul. Things didn't work out as you hoped them to. No. If anything, Paul's wanting to challenge and encourage the Ephesian saints, as well as the saints in Barling and Fort Smith, Arkansas, 
to challenge believers on their calling from God in their own lives, no matter the cost, no matter how difficult it may become, even if you are imprisoned for Christ. And that's why we read in verse 1, do you want to know how intense Paul gets with this passage? He urges them. Some of your translations might even say, I implore you, I beseech you, I beg you. But notice this isn't Paul trying to manipulate them. He's not trying to just sell them a bill of goods. No. See, in chapter 4, he begins, did you notice those two words? I, therefore. Which means Paul is grounding what he's about to say in this passage in light of what he's already said in chapters 1 to 3. Because we haven't been studying the book of Ephesians, Let me give you a summary of what's gone on so you can understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4. In chapter 1, he draws their attention to the mind-blowing reality that the God who created the world and the God who sovereignly works his perfect will in and throughout human history is the same God who chose to save them in Christ before the world was ever created. And then he opens the gift box of some of the beautiful blessings that God grants every sinner who comes to saving faith in Christ. He says that we are chosen or elected by God in order to be holy and blameless before him, that we were predestined to become children in his kingdom family, that we are recipients of God's rich love, mercy, and wisdom that he lavishes upon us in Christ, that we are all redeemed, having all our sins atoned for by the blood of Christ, and that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our eternal inheritance that awaits us in glory. And friends, that's just chapter one. That's just the first 14 verses. Then in chapter two, he reminds them all and us today that none of us ever deserve these blessings. The only thing we ever deserve is God's justice. The only thing we ever deserve is God's righteous wrath. But God, in his rich mercy, shows compassion and pity to impoverished sinners like you and me. He takes the initiative He draws us to him, and he gives us new hearts to trust him, new desires to love him and obey him because of what Jesus has done for us. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you know, I only imagine what's going through your mind when you show up to a church like this on a Sunday morning. You might be thinking, my goodness, I would rather get back to my video games, my Netflix, or sleeping in a few hours. I would try to sleep in here, but the chairs aren't that comfortable. But have you ever asked yourself, if you're not a Christian, why do these people keep coming back week in and week out and singing these songs, hearing this book read, confessing their sins, and receiving that assurance of pardon? Why do they do this every week? Well, it's friends, because we have already come to know how wicked we are, and how gracious God is. 
And we're going to keep doing that until Jesus comes back. And in case you're wondering, none of us have it all together. We're more sinful than you realize. If you knew how sinful we are, you probably wouldn't sit by one of us. But the only reason we don't make Hitler look like a choir boy is because God's grace has changed our hearts. And friends, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you don't have to clean up your act before you come to him. He takes you as is and he'll clean you up himself. Come to Christ. Christ lived a perfect life. He died in your place on a rugged cross. He bore the wrath of God that you deserve. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, commanding all of us to turn from our sins and trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Easter's coming up in a few weeks, but it's Easter every Sunday for Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. The Lord's Day is the day we worship and exalt the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want lasting hope, you want forgiveness, you want a clear conscience, you want to know the God who made you, then turn from your sins and trust in him. I would encourage you maybe to find a Christian friend. Read Ephesians chapter 2 today and think about how sinful we are, but how merciful God has been. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says that through Christ, we have peace with God. But also through Christ's work on the cross, he has brought us peace and reconciliation between sinners who were once hostile towards one another. You see, the church is not made up of just a bunch of white people from Arkansas. The church is not made up of a bunch of Americans. No, the church is made up of a people who have been chosen in Christ, who have been atoned by the blood of Jesus Christ from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. You see what God is doing in the world? He is taking what has divided us and bringing us into being one new man, one new people, one new body. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Beloved, the Lord is calling a people out of darkness from all over the globe to be a dwelling place, to be a temple for God, to be a people where God's rule, God's holiness, God's wisdom, and God's love radiates from our lives. Which is where he really continues into Ephesians chapter 3. And then he tells us, who is this unified people? Who are these reconciled people with God and with one another? Chapter 3, verse 10, the church. Who is the church? Well, over the last two weeks, we have looked at passages like Matthew 16, and we've learned that the church is the people whom God has called out of darkness and made children of light who are now unified together by his spirit, confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, Paul calls this plan a mystery, a mystery that was once concealed from nations, concealed from angels, concealed even from God's people in previous generations, and has now been revealed. The curtains of heaven's Wisdom has been made known of what God's plan is through the church. And then he concludes chapter 3 with a prayer. 
God would strengthen us so that we might know the love of Christ, but in turn, that we would show that same love towards others who've been reconciled in Christ. So, that's Ephesians 1 to 3. And here in Ephesians 4, Paul then begins addressing God's children to act like their heavenly father. To live and love the way they have been loved by God in Christ. Have you ever been invited to a party or a banquet or maybe a really nice restaurant? But you notice when you showed up at the doors, you didn't dress according to the standard? Maybe you forgot to read the fine print. Dress attire, business casual, and please, no sandals. You showed up with a Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville t-shirt, looking like you were showing up for a beach bum parade. Well, here in Ephesians 4, Paul exhorting the believers to live out, to put on the appropriate dress attire, to put on that heavenly clothing of God's primary calling on our lives. And what is that calling? What has he called you to do, dear brother and sister in Christ? To live and to love because of the grace and mercy that God has shown you. Listen, if God has loved you as much as he says he has, then the most fitting way, the most appropriate thing you can do is to love his church, to love God's church. To love his people. And that means to love all genuine Christians. No matter how similar or how different than they are than you. Brothers and sisters, that means we are called to love the new baby Christians. We are called to love the mature oak tree Christians. We are called to love the elderly Christians and the teenager Christians. We are called to love Christians who know their Bibles well, and we are called to love Christians who just bought their first Bible. Listen, we're called to love Christians who are Arkansas fans, and we're called to love Christians who are Sooner fans. We are called to love homebound Christians. We're called to love prickly personality Christians, stubborn Christians, weird and quirky Christians, and yes, there are many of them discouraged Christians, needy Christians, well-educated Christians, disorganized Christians, poor Christians, rich Christians, Christians who grew up in Fort Smith their whole life, and Christians who only lived here for less than a couple of years. And listen, before he talks about spiritual gifts, before he talks about showing off your talents before the church, Paul reminds us that our first and highest calling as believers is to love the church, to love the bride of Christ, to love the members of his body. But what will that love look like? What will it feel like? He says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And for what purpose? Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
That word eager there implies great enthusiasm. It means with utmost diligence. More easily to remember, do your best. Give it all you got. The word maintain there can also mean to keep, to guard, to preserve. Here we are in March, right? We are in the thick of March Madness, and the NCAA basketball tournament is upon us. Julie made it known to me this morning that my entire bracket has bombed in the first round. Terrible at these things. You best believe, though, if you turn on the game, you'll see coaches and players, and maybe even some of you, eager and enthusiastic about the team you're rooting for. And if you're really dedicated, you'll even make rules and put them up in your living room or your man cave or your she den, if you have one. Signs like, no one can walk in front of the television. No one should touch the remote control. If someone gets close to distracting you from the game, they're going to get a judo chop. In one sense, that should be what a Christian's attitude in relationship to Christ's church. You see, our love for the church should be characterized by a zeal, by an enthusiastic eagerness, by a diligent focus. But a focus to do what? An enthusiasm to protect what? The unity of Christ's church. The unity of Christ's church. This is the oneness, the togetherness, the sweet, intimate oneness that the spirit of the triune God has formed in the lives of God's people. In essence, Paul is saying this, love, true Christian love, will do its best to protect the unity that God has created in his church. Let me say those words again. They're loaded with theological implications. Love will do its best to protect the unity that God has already created in his church. That means that the heart behind someone who wants to divide, deceive, and destroy Christ's church is a heart filled with hatred and pride. It's really a heart that's been held captive not to do the Lord's will, not to save Christ's causes, but it's really to do the will of Satan himself. Friends, Satan can use church members like Cracker Barrel checker pieces. He will move people around and set up plots in order to create havoc in the lives of Christ's sheep. And that's why Paul ushers these stern warnings, in particular to the church in Corinth, when sinful men and immature believers were dividing Christ's church. If you want a text to think about the severity of causing division in Christ's church, listen to this one. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 
For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Beloved, do you do your best to protect the unity in Christ's church? When you gather with the saints on the Lord's day, do you find yourself eager and thinking of ways to preserve the oneness of fellowship we have here at CCBC? When you're sitting in your living room throughout the week and you hear someone speak unkind and untrue things about Christ's people, does your heart break when the bond of peace is being threatened in Christ's church? Or have you grown weary, indifferent, lazy in your zeal to maintain that unity in Christ's church? I think maybe a good exercise for all of us is to think carefully over our own hearts this morning. In what ways are you and I tempted to disrupt the peace of God's church and hurt our unity? Are you tempted towards gossip? Making up stuff about someone and spreading it around in order to gain a following? How about being presumptuous? You know, assuming the worst motives of someone that you don't even really know yet. Instead of investigating the facts about someone, you draw hasty conclusions based off of hearsay and not concrete evidence. How about jealousy? There's one sin that the church doesn't talk about enough. Are you prone to envy those whom God is using in ways that you wish he was using you? Do you become angry when others are recognized in the church, but you get overlooked? How about impatience? Do you tend to give up on a fellow believer when they're not growing as fast as you would like them to? How about a hardened or embittered heart? Are you nursing a grudge against a fellow believer instead of choosing to forgive? knowing that love covers a multitude of sins. Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, I say all this this morning to remind each one of us that we cannot be ignorant of our enemies' deceitful plots. If God is doing a great work among us and through us, the enemy does not sleep or slumber. You see, where there is a lack of forgiveness or a lack of love, you can guarantee that Satan will be working overtime. Satan will sow seeds of hatred and lies within the walls of a church when the door of divisiveness is left open in a church. Paul will go on later in this same chapter, look down in Ephesians 4, verses 25 and 27, to mention this very thing. Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 27. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the what? The truth, what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Look at verse 27. 
I love how Paul just slips it in there and give no opportunity to the devil. No foothold, no cracked door. Lock tight and shut. Give no chance for the devil to wreak havoc. You see, God loves unity in his body because God created that unity in his body. And he did this by his spirit through his son to show off the beauty and the oneness of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The oneness of one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, being co-equal and co-eternal, perfectly united in their fellowship, perfectly united in their will, perfectly united in their love for one another. Friends, I hope you're getting this this morning. God loves his church. Listen, if you saw my wife in a part of town where she was in danger and you saw it and you could have prevented it and you didn't, who do you think is going to be after you now? Her husband. Me. You might have not done anything directly to me, but you did not protect what something meant to me. My bride. Friends, my love for my wife pales in comparison to Jesus' love for his church. God loves his body. He loves his people. And that means he will deal severely with those who try to destroy his temple. Brothers and sisters who are members at CCBC, we should be praying constantly. You want to add something to a regular prayer diet? We need to pray not to become indifferent to what God says about unity in his body. You see, God is not indifferent. He's not apathetic. He's not falling asleep at the wheel. Now listen to these words from Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. You want to know what God doesn't like? He's given us a list. Seven that are an abomination to him. Okay, that's a really, really deep disgust. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Uh, to this point, Matthew Henry once wrote a timeless word for Christians to heed here. The first step towards unity is humility. Only by pride comes contention. Only by humility comes love. The more lowly-mindedness, the more like-mindedness. We do not walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called if we do not meek if we are not meek and lowly of heart. For he, that is Christ, by whom we are called, he to whom we are called, was imminent for meekness and lowliness of heart and has commanded us therein to learn of him. Friends, we were in Philippians this past fall. What was the recipe for church unity? 
Look at the humiliation of Jesus. A church that's divided is a church that lacks humility. Friends, pray that each one of us would decrease, that Christ might increase. And I do want to be clear on this topic because there is some confusion about unity. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Let me say that again. Unity is not the same as uniformity. We don't have to agree on everything in order to love each other. We don't have to be just like one another or think like one another on every conceivable issue. We're not here to create some artificial peace so that we can just get along for the sake of avoiding any conflict. No, that's what you call a cult, a C-U-L-T. That's a cult. It's where you brainwash people so they can't think for themselves. That's not a church. God is not saying stop being a man and be like a woman or stop being a woman and be like a man. He's not saying that everyone should homeschool their kids or everyone should wear ties to church or everyone must be Democratic or Republican. No, the unity or the oneness he speaks of is really like the one flesh union that a husband and wife share in marriage. Men and women are super different. Men and women cook different, clean different, act different, sometimes smell different. But the fact of the matter is, you're still bound together as one, even amidst all the diversity. And friends, the love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ will reveal the same unity we have in our love from our Heavenly Father. In fact, Paul is teaching them something that many of us are probably not even aware of. Because of Christ's work on the cross and his oneness with his Heavenly Father, all those who believe in Christ, listen, are made one with one another and one with the triune God. Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father in John 17, verses 10 and 11. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Then again in John 17, verses 20 to 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Friends, John 17 is a waterfall of goodness. Do you want to know what Jesus has been praying for on behalf of all of those who would ever trust in him? That we would experience the oneness that the Father and the Son experience eternally in heaven. Friends, that means this, that the bond you and I share with other believers in Christ, both here at CCBC and with believers around the world, goes deeper 
and last longer than any bond you share with your biological family. And according to Jesus' prayer, when unbelievers watch the oneness of God's people amidst all of our diversity, Jesus says they will understand and know the love between the Father and the Son. That's what God's doing. You want an evangelistic campaign? Protect the unity of Christ's church. You want to reach the nations? Pray for the oneness of Christ's people to radiate and cause unbelievers to have to look again. How do all these people who look and sound so different love each other with a love that I don't even have in my own family? This is God's wisdom. This is how he's going to cause the nations and the angels and even the demons to take notice that God is doing something supernatural through the church. You see, the oneness we have comes from our common faith in Jesus. Because we're empowered by the same Holy Spirit, we experience the same Father's love. Look at verses 4 to 6. That's why he says this, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, can Christians disagree with one another and yet still love one another? Well, of course. Can Christians have different opinions about the mask mandates and COVID-19 and the style of music on a Sunday morning or the length of a service or a style of a preacher? Can Christians disagree on those things and still genuinely love and respect each other? You're supposed to do this. Absolutely. If you didn't get that, I need to start over again. Can Christians disagree on secondary and tertiary doctrinal matters? Absolutely. Christians may at times need to join a different church that lines more consistently with their beliefs. In particular, those secondary or tertiary matters. But as long as it's a gospel preaching and gospel obeying church, and they're trying to do their best to teach God's word to God's people, then, beloved, they're a sister church. So here at CCBC, in order to join this body of believers, you must be able to do three things. Accurately articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we're a Christian church. Share your testimony of how God has converted you. And then you must be able to affirm, support, and teach in good conscience all that is contained in our statement of faith and church covenant. But if you can't do those three things, then this church may not be the church for you. And guess what? That's totally fine. My feelings are not hurt. Beloved, we might have 90 plus members here, but I'm under no pretense that six months from now, folks might leave here and join another church. As long as that church preaches the gospel 
as long as they're desiring to see mature followers of Jesus made like Jesus, that's a win in the kingdom in my book. It's not about how many people can come to our restaurant and eat our food. It's about the gospel going forward and churches who preach the same gospel being built up. If we're not the best church for your particular convictions and where you're at in your life, then go find a church that preaches the same gospel, that you can joyfully submit to their leadership and confidently affirm what they teach and believe. CCCCC. CCBC. I'm just going to start doing this. I hope, friends, every, I hope we as a church will model this type of humility to other churches in the River Valley. Friends, just to let you know what I do with my time, beyond 20 hours of sermon prep on Tuesdays, 90% of the time, if the wall doesn't fall down and the Lord just throws all these sorts of crazy things my way, I'm meeting with other pastors all around the River Valley. You know why? Because I'm trying to build as big of a bridge as I can to affirm gospel preaching pastors and gospel preaching churches to see those churches built up. You know why I lead us to pray for other churches every Sunday? Well, it's to inform you that we're not the only outpost of the kingdom in town. Friends, we're not the only church. God's kingdom is way bigger than 813 Fort Street. Trust me. I know. Listen, I want all of us to model from the members and the chairs to the pastor in the pulpit a humility to affirm and encourage true sister churches. Will some churches be more and less healthy? Absolutely. And pray for them. But I would encourage you, beloved, we're a brand new church. We don't have anything to boast in except the cross of Jesus Christ. We should spend most of our time affirming the good we do see in other churches instead of critiquing how they're not like us. Because friends, if any man thinks he stands, if any church thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. Let's pray for humility in our church family. Friends, when you and I have hearts of humility, this church will be a mighty fortress against Satan's schemes to disrupt the unity in his people. Well, that leads to point number two. It's not only the unity, but the discipleship culture that Paul wants to see grow in churches. In verses 7 to 16, Paul's going to share the worthy calling to build up the body of Christ. In verses 1 to 6, we are told to protect the unity of the body of Christ. But now in verses 7 to 16, we are now told a very important goal for every true church. And that is to see every true church built up to mature for every member to become more like Jesus. Friends, this is the overarching goal of every ministry that a local church should ever have. And it is this, to see every member using their spiritual gifts. I love this next phrase though in accordance with the present needs of the church to serve one another so that each Christian will mature in Christ's likeness. Look at verses 7 to 11 with me. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Paul mentions in verses 7 to 11 that Christ has uniquely gifted every believer for service. That's really implied there in verse 7. You can look at other passages like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4 that talks more about spiritual gifts. But here in Ephesians, he's not necessarily saying every Christian is gifted with a spiritual gift. No, that's true. That's not his main point here. Paul takes it one step further. He says there are some believers that Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father, has given as gifts to his church to be ministers of the word. That's really verses 8 to 11. Literally, individuals throughout church history that God, in his mysterious kindness, gift wraps in a unique ability to help shepherd Christ, church. Those who will speak the word of God as a central part of their ministry. Did you notice he mentions four offices here? Apostles, prophets, the evangelist, and the shepherds and teachers. Now, each of these offices have been ordained of God, and some of them were temporary in operation during the apostolic era. Today, shepherds and teachers are most likely referring to the same office of elder, pastor, overseer. Again, we've been going through what elders are on Sunday night. If you forget what those are, you can look on the podcast. These are the primary servant leaders who preach and teach the scriptures so that God's people are fed God's word. Back in verse 8, if you want to follow with me, Paul here alludes to Psalm 68. You can see it's probably in a talent sized in your English Bibles. Uh, and he's using this uh, quotation from Psalm 68 as a vivid imagery of Christ as a victorious and exalted king that has defeated his, his enemies, uh, sin, death, and Satan, uh, like a king or warrior coming back from the battle with spoil in his hands. Christ resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. But friends, what happened after Christ was resurrected? What happened when he ascended and then sat at the right hand of the Father? Well, we see the book of Acts. The promised Holy Spirit came as a gift from heaven to be poured out on his people. And that's where we see the birth of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2. And that means one central role in ministry of the Holy Spirit, listen, is to enable God's people to do God's work in God's power. It is to enable God's people to do God's work in God's power. That's what spiritual gifts are for. So to see his church built up, God gifted certain believers and set them apart to lead, to teach, to protect, and to care for Christ's sheep. Christ blesses his church through the Spirit with biblically qualified men who are called to shepherd the flock of God for whom Christ died. These men are called 
pastors or pastor teacher. But friend, again, some of us come with baggage, don't we? If you've grown up in a church where the pastor is looked at as the CEO, kind of like a spiritual dictator, just throw Baptist on there instead of communist. <laughs> but friends, is a pastor to be a dictator? Is a pastor to even the professional who does all the ministry while the members of the church sit back like they're at a movie theater? Is the pastoral staff the professionals who do all the ministry for you? Look again in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. What does Paul say? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Friends, that means the basic calling of a pastor or an elder is to equip or prepare you, the church members, to do the work of ministry. That's really my ministry philosophy. The elders that will be raised up, the staff that, Lord willing, I'll one day be able to hire if God provides for us, that is their overarching goal, to equip the members to do the work of ministry. You see, a pastor or a plurality of elders will best serve you, not by doing all the work of ministry for you, but by equipping you and encouraging you to do the ministry God has already given you. This is really just a beautiful picture, once again, of God's wisdom and how he puts his church together. And what happens when God's people think biblically about the church? Christ's church is built up. Christians grow. You see, as your lead pastor, I see my role as twofold. I'm called to equip you to do the work of ministry, primarily through prayer and the ministry of the word. But another important part of my role as your pastor that will enable or prevent much growth in this church is my responsibility to identify, raise up, and equip new leaders, more shepherds to care for the flock of God with me. That's why Paul said to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So members of CCBC, pray that God would raise up more biblically qualified men to serve as pastors and elders in our church. Pray that the fireworks of passion 
to aspire to this noble task of caring for the sheep that Christ died for would burn in their hearts and help me with the load that I am bearing right now alone. I need them, and I need you to help me find them so that we can do this in a beautiful way. Friends, this is why God has set this up. You know what happens when every member of the body has a humble heart, using their spiritual gifts with whatever the present needs of the church are? Well, verse 13, it's to know Christ and become like him. We're made more into his image. We're no longer like babies tossed to and fro. That's really the second point, to be grounded firm in the truth so that we can tell others the truth in love. Friends, when God's church is acting like God's church, Christians grow. The church is built up. Every member is maturing into Christ-likeness. Listen, it is God's will for every Christian in this room to mature. It is God's will for every Christian to grow up and to become more like their Lord. Friends, that's why we need each other. That's why we can't live a remote control Billy Bob Baptist Church kind of life. That's why joining a healthy church is so important for your Christian life. Joining a healthy local church is far more important than your kids playing on the best sports team. Joining a healthy church might mean saying no to a higher paying job in another city because there are no good churches in that area. Instead, you should stay put and keep growing in the church God has put you in. Friends, joining a local church that's healthy might mean moving your life closer to that community to better integrate your life with the members of that congregation. Friends, when we heed Jesus' words in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom. Things like sports games, money, and earthly comforts grow strangely dim. When we really care about what's most important, when the kingdom of God through his local church is the priority of our life, all these competing distractions really don't look that appealing anymore. Friends, a healthy church isn't a perfect church because every church is going to have flaws and inconsistencies. But a healthy church is a church that takes God's truth seriously. A local church that approaches church membership intentionally and a local church, even with all its problems, tries to disciple one another into mature followers of Jesus. You know, some of us have grown up in different kind of, I would say, movements when it comes to discipling. What is discipling? Discipling is coming alongside a fellow believer to do them spiritual good by modeling a godly life and teaching them sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Really, discipling is four things if you boil it all down. Number one, discipling is intentional. Discipling is intentional. It takes initiative to invest in someone's life, to get to know them, and prayerfully and patiently help them follow Jesus. But friends, it's a two-way street. If you want to grow, 
When you look in the mirror and you look in God's word and realize, I have a lot of growth to do, you have to take initiative to ask others for help. Friends, get over your fear of man and begin cultivating humility now. If someone says they don't have the bandwidth or the time to disciple you, then trust God. Move on. God may have someone else that would be a better fit for you. Number two, discipling is biblical. Discipling is biblical. You see, the word of God is our authority. We study the scriptures together. We can talk about the sermon together. We can ask challenging spiritual questions towards one another. So here at CCBC, we have a women's Bible study led by Mindy Clark that meets on Tuesday and Wednesdays. We have a children's equipping hour led by Dorinda Smith and other parents who are volunteering their time to teach kids from kindergarten to fifth grade on Wednesday nights. Here, starting in April in a few weeks, Lord willing, we'll have an adult equipping class led by Gunnar DeLay on Wednesday nights where you'll get to learn some of the key essential truths of the Christian life. And since January of this year, we've begun a pastoral internship program where Jansen Lesser is our first intern. And this is for men who aspire to be a pastor in Christ's church. And then, of course, some of you are already doing things organically. I mean, it's kind of on your own time with people you already have a relationship with. Alan Williams has a group of men he has been studying the statement of faith with for months now. Stan Clark has been gathering a group of men for prayer for over the last year or so. Jeff Pruitt leads a Zoom Bible study at Southside High School each month. And there are many of you doing similar things together and beyond. You're visiting each other in one another's homes. You're taking walks to talk about life and faith. You're emailing and texting one another Christian sermons and songs and prayer requests. Friends, this church is starting to see some of the fruits of a disciple-making church. And parents, never forget your first discipling ministry is your home. The church is to come alongside you, but it is not here to replace your job to disciple your children. So husbands, intentionally pray with and care for your wife's spiritual growth. Wives, intentionally pray and encourage your husband's spiritual growth. Friends, keep growing, keep abounding. Think of ways to do spiritual good in one another's lives. Number three, discipling is relational. Discipling is relational. Discipling certainly revolves around the word of God, but there's also a relational component to it. Friends, every time you get together, it doesn't have to be a Bible study. You don't have to quote authors you're reading. You can just hang out. Some of y'all need the spiritual gift of hanging out. Eat together, vacation together, spend time doing something you enjoy together. A large part of discipling is letting others see Christ in you, both in your good times and in your bad. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Friends, discipling may begin in a classroom, but it most naturally will take place in the living room. And number four, discipling is real messy. Discipling is real messy. You see, our sin was atoned for at the cross, but the presence of sin is still at war in our flesh. People are not computers. 
You don't just hit a few buttons and voila, a mature Christian overnight. Last time I checked, there are no microwave discipling mechanisms. We are human beings that really don't change that quickly, often. Some of us are entrenched in sin from our past life. Some of us have grown up in homes where we've never even been told, I love you, or I'm proud of you. Friends, some of us have never even tried to read the Bible for ourselves, and we're still intimidated by how big the book is. But that's okay. Isn't that how God has loved us? God meets us where we're at, but he patiently leads us to where we need to be. One of my favorite verses on pastoral ministry, it's really my discipling philosophy and reminder every week. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. I'd encourage you to spend some time thinking about this. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Brothers and sisters, what is our primary calling? What must the goal of our church ministries be? We're called to protect the unity of the church. You see, I, as your pastor, am called to be patient in shepherding you. And you, as the church, are called to be patient in helping me grow as a shepherd. And as a church, we're called to build up the body of Christ together. We should hear the word of God every Sunday like a waterfall. Some of us have small, tiny little doctor's cups. Some of us come with two buckets. Feed me, Pastor Blake. But even if you've got a little cup, take what you got, drink it, and then give the rest to someone else. Take what you learn, not just for yourself, but take what you learn in God's word and share it with others. Friends, when this happens, the unity of Christ's church is protected and the maturity of Christ's church grows. A church united as one to love one another will be united as one to disciple one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be a people that is eager to protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, I pray that you would cause each one of us to think intentionally about how we can do spiritual good to other believers in our church. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is humble, speaking well of other churches, praying for the prosperity of other churches, so that we could be one of many churches wanting to be a faithful church in the River Valley. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.